And hello, hello. Uh, we are back again with another exclusive take on a very ginormous filmmaker. We are covering William Freakin tonight. And with my host, I got Caitlin. Hello. <laughs> <laughs> By Scared Sheepless. Yeah. <laughs> You're a big Sorry. horror movie reviewer for Horrified Magazine and Ghouls Magazine. Yeah, I'm getting there, getting stuff out. And, uh, yeah, it, it's really fun to be part of both those outlets and, and just getting to see lots of different films, getting to film festivals and uh, seeing a lot of indie cinema as well. Thousand percent. Uh, so how did you get into the genre and freaking? Um, I think obviously sort of because I'm based in horror, my main connection to freaking is with The Exorcist. Um, which I, I think is probably going to be the case for a lot of people. It's, you know, one of those films that it sort of steps outside of the film. It's developed such a kind of mythology around it that even if you're not a horror fan, you'll have seen The Exorcist um, and things like that. So generally, I, I sort of see his vision in genre terms uh, more than anything. Um yeah, he never really sticks with one drama. He's got some crime dramas, he's got some horror thrillers, and then he's got some uh, mystery and action movies. So it, he kind of, he's just a thriller guy, really. And Yeah, whatever. and even in terms of basing things on a play, um, which is perhaps something that you wouldn't expect from from someone like that, who who is very much sort of a visual uh, artist then. Totally. Um, like Wes Craven was a psychologist and Romero was, you know, just, yeah. uh, had a blue collar background. And then you want to go in all these other guys. I mean, Hitchcock was kind of just an old school kind of anthology kind of guy. So, I mean, yeah. It's just, yeah. And he, I, I think Friedkin kind of learns a lot of lessons from Hitchcock as well, you know. So, where Hitchcock is kind of sort of quite well known for his genre slash thriller stuff you can yeah. see where Friedkin picks a lot of that up like I think about a lot of the you know the hype around the exorcist when it was first being shown that is straight out the psycho PR team uh, and everything like that you know ambulances outside a lot of hype you're not kind of allowed to leave the cinema things like that it all feels like it's it's very much from him seeing what was done with that? Uh, a, a thousand percent. And I, I, I gotta say though, I, I really don't think, it's amazing how he's done a lot of movies, but I really don't think it goes into Coppola territory where then he just became better known for doing director's cuts or Ridley Scott where it's a lot of great movies and then a lot of really awful misfires. <laughs> Yeah, he seems kind of picky, I, I think it is probably the thing. But I, but I was listening to something he'd, he'd said a little while ago in an interview uh, when he was doing press for Killer Joe, and he was kind of talking about how he would never get tired of recutting his films. Like, he loves recutting and re-exploring his films. Like, they're never done to him. There's always sort of a time to go back in and change something, which I think is fascinating. A thousand percent. Um, and it was even noted that um, he has like only a few movies which he will refuse to talk about. And it's kind of a shame because some of them I feel are like really underrated. 
And but however, compared to most people who had to play the Hollywood, you know, studio compromise or had producer interference, I think he still has aged better. There's still just a lot of big, powerful ideas in a lot of his movies that really just were either edgy enough or just relevant in any era to where they were eventually going to be explored. And it's just a shame that because they weren't big hits or in some rare cases, you know, critical misfires, they kind of got ignored and not played. And because they were, you know, intense enough, they weren't really aired on regular TV, unfortunately. Um, So, but I mean, out of all the filmmakers we've done, I still think he's leagues ahead of, say, uh, you know, Brian De Palma, who, you know, had kind of like maybe five hit movies and then a lot of really, really bad movies or like it or hate it movies. <laughs> yeah, I think it's so interesting to me as well how he'd, um, he kind of undercut De Palma for cruising because cruise, uh, De Palma originally wanted to make cruising. He was trying to get the rights to the novel and couldn't um and then oh interesting kind of, yeah he came out from under him and I kind of think about cruising and I wonder what kind of film that would be in De Palma's hands because he made uh, Dress to Kill instead um when he couldn't get it so really interesting because they're both That's kind so of cool. <laughs> kind of really strange quite problematic to look back on although obviously as with everything there's sort of a reclaiming of them in in some spheres so originally sort of cruising is looked at as like well you're exploring a scene that kind of generalizes people and is sort of highlighting a violence of that scene that's not necessarily there um yeah it's going to be some over exaggeration and dated philosophy and I think, like you say, I mean, I don't know how much of that is some of the fear mongering, you know, imposed by him, Hmm. uh, uh, you know, from his Jewish faith. Uh, I I know some people disagree with some of the Christian symbolism and fear mongering in The Exorcist. And I think it's just one of those is like, uh, you know, it's a fantasy movie, so it can get away with whatever it's wanting to talk about. However intense or personal you want to make it, that's on you, kind of. Yeah, I think as well, it's, it's one of these things with Friedkin is the authenticity that he looks for. Um, so even though, for example, I'm not religious, um, I, I don't buy into the philosophy. You kind of, to a point, have to watch The Exorcist as a believer um, because that's Friedkin's kind of read on it. He goes in and he goes, well, I have to believe that this is what's happening. Uh, in order how, to make that film. The same like with an actor is like, well, how do you play a hero or a villain convincingly? I have to believe in what they're talking about. So I have to find a way to humanize the what's otherwise I can't humanize. So like you say, is like, yeah. I mean, however he was raised, that's what he's gonna do. And I'm I'm one of those I don't find it a scary movie, but I find it an effective and a very well scored and a very engaging movie. It's a very dramatically rewarding piece of cinema. Yeah, I mean, I I think what's interesting for me is sort of when you first watch it, um, because obviously in the UK, we've got a very complicated relationship with controversial films. (laughs) (laughs) I think like Exorcist had uh, a cinema release and then it went away because it was kind of due to do the rounds on home video, but 
it was sort of it was never banned there's sort of a, a thing about it being banned that wasn't quite the case but it was sort of said they said to them don't submit it because we won't pass it so don't waste your money you know <laughs> there, there was no point them sending the movie to the bbfc because there was no way that they were going to give it a certificate so it could be on home video <laughs> so i want to say that it first turns up on home video in maybe years like, later <laughs> the movie yeah, 2002, banned, 20 years. yeah 2002 2003 and it's also like so the first version i was buying had like the spider walk put back in and everything like that so I, I, and I, I guess that plays into his hands really as a director who likes to revisit his movie and likes right? to <laughs> tinker with bits and you know kind of go oh well we're gonna put some more subliminal stuff in or we're gonna do this and I think you know I, I would have been 12 13 the first time I watched it and obviously you go into it with all the mystique around it and how um you know how dangerous it is almost you know that, that there was such a concern about that movie and then you watch it and yet yeah, it's scary and it's noisy and it's everything like that and then when you revisit it I think particularly when you're older I find it that the upsetting bits get to me more uh so for example the medical scenes with her I find very uncomfortable to watch um, because they yeah. feel a little bit too close to reality, you know, that the the sort of the worry you would have of taking your kid to have all those invasive procedures. I think it, it covers it quite well, you know, the desperation of it. Uh, and I also find the sort of more subtle, scary moments like, um, you know, the the altar boy uh, quote within it as sort of this idea of the evil being an omniscient presence that it's everywhere oh, totally. uh, and it just keeps seeping in and you know you can do all the head spinning and everything like that but it's that bit that really scares me if, if that makes sense no I, I totally get it it's definitely one of those where you're just like okay you know that this is why it's scary to some people because they just feel like nothing can I mean, I even feel like the Exorcist show even hit on it better. It's like the whole realm of what do I do? Nothing is working. And the, my loved one is now possessed by a demon. Yeah. I mean, I love the Exorcist show. I could go on for hours about that. Oh, we did a <laughs> yeah. very special on it. We were just like, let's talk about Bates Motel. Let's talk about the Exorcist TV show yeah. continuation. And then let's talk about the damn uh, Damien show, which was also like The Omen. I think the Exorcist works well in that category in that you're just you're used to even Hellraiser to some extent you are used to this kind of just demon possession and how all the various sins of a person are coming to into question yeah and it works better in that longer format as well you get longer with them you kind of tune into them a little more you know you get two priests for a lot longer and and understand a lot more about them but I think you know even in the in the film the the more I watch it, the more I tune into the kind of emotion of of Karras then, uh, of his sort of, his battling with his faith almost, because it, it doesn't even, even have to be a religious thing. Obviously, it is in the sense of the film, but just this idea of a man who kind of doesn't know who he is anymore. 
mm-hmm. um, I find that quite affecting and obviously the the sort of the struggle to recover that yeah I it's definitely I think that's pretty much all of his movies that in a nutshell it, it has to be what you know that's good screenwriting in general what does a character want how will they get it and yeah. will they succeed but it gets even more to the point he kind of just hits it over the head with you know mm. this is how desperate they are and that's why i mean i just find his movies all the more appealing i love i mean again french connection people can talk all they want about bullet and plenty of other 70s hardballed movies but i when i saw french connection it stayed in my mind it still did, does to this day and i haven't even seen it in years but it was just even years before i realized later how real the car chase actually was without a permit and you know the genuine reactions i i i think it got me used to the whole cat and mouse thing and how some movies can misfire by being too reliant on the frills and some movies like that can be just right (laughs) yeah absolutely i i think it's that thing again from one of the interviews i was reading with him he, he sort of said that if there's one thing that links all of his films it's that he has these characters who are in desperate situations with very few options um so you can kind of watch them sort of going why are they doing this this seems like a terrible idea but then he does enough exploration around it to be like well that's the only thing they can do yes it's like uh, they they played their dice and here's where they landed yeah absolutely yeah so you get that sort of really complex thing and like I say you've touched on sort of the car chase and his lack of permits and I think as well his wider behavior um has not been great at times and it's stuff that hopefully we are becoming less tolerant of um because I think there's been sort of a lot of allowances made for particularly kind of auteur in air quotes directors who kind of use their their notoriety in order to treat people poorly um which doesn't feel like the most conducive atmosphere uh, to think i mean as much as you enjoy the exorcist do i enjoy it more knowing that ellen burstein really hurt her back no, it, it doesn't make a difference to, to that scene. In fact, it sort of sours it. Um, and I think a lot of his off-screen behavior while making films. Yeah, some of them are definitely Hitchcock S, where I heard he, oh, I guess I'll get to some of that in a bit. But yeah, I, I heard Michael Bean, who worked with him a few different times, you know, from James Cameron crew, you know, Aliens and Terminator, uh, said, he he was no stranger to getting into very heated arguments, but they were kind of more the kind, no, it's going to be like this. No, fuck, it's going to be like that. And so it was kind of more like just, and he would always after fact, he's like, God, I hate working with him, but he is such a great filmmaker. So I'm sure if anyone shows an attitude, it's just kind of more of a, hey, got to stay on time, on budget. Otherwise, you know, <laughs> got no more yeah. to play. I, but, I do wonder if he might have mellowed on, maybe sit in substances uh since the 70s and 80s when he did when a lot about of that, that. <laughs> 81 he got like or 88 or something he got like a stroke or some shit and he yeah he I, pitch rehab. yeah i think you know when you it's difficult to imagine i think being in any workplace where 
the person in charge thinks nothing of firing a gun or slapping people or, oh god yeah you know it, it's just insane i mean you, it's and again it's that kind of thing that makes you look at it and go well do you need to do that you know it, it like surely there are better ways but there was a, a kind of fun ish anecdote because by all accounts he kind of looked after linda blair because she was 12 um and oh yeah you know, he was gonna look after to. her but he would like say to her if she didn't get things done <laughs> to a certain point that she wasn't getting her milkshake because <laughs> he'd identified pretty quickly that she loved a milkshake so it was like right if you do everything today you get your milkshake if you don't well <laughs> I just think like but, but I, again I think that's that kind of shows <laughs> I, I think that kind of shows that his kind of he wasn't out of control he chose his targets quite carefully which you know makes him worse really um that he felt he could take liberties with certain people so he kind of yeah. directed a lot of his angry kind of destructive behavior at them I agree I, I did hear how, and, and uh, so far I haven't seen anything too contrarian, except for when he's asked multiple times, what is your favorite movie? And it seems like he pretty much, I, I'm convinced that he loves everything he's done, even yeah. the ones he's not proud of, because he wouldn't do change anything, even in a so-called director's cut. Because like, like you say, is like he, earlier he was saying, I love the boys in the band, one of the first, you know, openly queer movies you know and yeah. he had just come off of music documentaries and other historical relevance material and theater and tv including directing now for hitchcock hour but um uh yeah uh, when he and then later on he said uh, i'm uh, a sorcerer or something like that i can't find that article on the bin. <laughs> i'm yeah. sure he might have even said the exorcist at the time yeah it's the best movie i've ever made but then he says like his favorite movie is Jade, which, you know, was yeah. a clusterfuck behind the scenes. You got David Caruso back when he had a hot head before he had to learn to cool it. You know? Yeah. yeah. CSI. And then Angie Everhart was the actress on that. And she apparently yeah, wasn't doing something he had asked. And he decided instead of just asking her again nicely to just bitch slap her. And I'm like, yeah, that's, I, I don't, I can't find the article on that anymore, but I recall seeing that in a forum about difficult people in workplace. So I'm like, uh, take it inside of a rumor or some crewman who knew some other crewman and <laughs> spread from there. But yeah, I mean, it was really interesting a little while ago at the Fractured Visions Festival, um, which runs out of Cardiff. They had Stephen Volk there as sort of a, a guest of honor. And oh, yeah, he's the writer of The Guardian. Yeah, yeah. Yes. And he had stories <laughs> about that whole process. <laughs> and so that's it, as good it's... as we're going to get because I, I was looking at an article on it today. I really liked that movie, but it was hated by everybody. And he apparently, there's apparently a cable TV version which he had an Alan Von Smithy is his name on there. <laughs> but I had no idea that. Sam Raimi was the original guy behind it. And so that's why it has kind of an evil dead mentality that seems slightly out of tone. And then, uh, yeah, Stephen Volk had done the similar gothic movie, The Kiss, two years ago, and Ken Russell's gothic. So I'm like, yeah, 
trying to work with two different kinds of scripts. <laughs> yeah, because I think he'd originally signed on when Raimi was, was there. So it was more of a comedy. But I, I don't think... That would make better sense because a lot of people yeah. were apparently reportedly critics and audiences were laughing out saying, what the fuck is this? <laughs> Yeah, I, and I think I guess if you were going to look at anything for Friedkin and say that there's something missing, it's probably a sense of humor. Like all of his stuff is so achingly sincere. I wouldn't be surprised uh, if some makeup guys were joking and he was just like, just uh, just do what I ask. I'm so out of. I'm just gonna be more coffee. I'm just out of it. Yeah. <laughs> and you're like, but, dude, you gotta laugh, man. You gotta laugh. <laughs> yeah. Gonna lose your audience. Because it's such a, like The Guardian, it, it, it is quite a, a silly idea, you know, which lots of horror ideas are. But if you kind of do a little bit of a laugh at it, you can then go back into the scares because you've kind of indulged that little bit of people that are going, that's stupid. <laughs> you know, they, they're allowed to laugh at it a little bit. But the way that Friedkin... I, and by all accounts, he kind of took over. So it's the... been a minute. I recall it being acceptable, but I'm sure, like any movie, you can find stuff that hasn't dated well or is unintentionally heavy-handed. And it's, it's yeah. um, I, I really like it, but I'm sure if I went back, I would find some stuff in there that mm, that's something I would expect from a Canon Films film, not something of this <laughs> caliber. There is, there is one scene that seems to go from like broad daylight to I do recall the, in the middle of the night I'm like, is it night or is it day or is it just a figment yeah. of their imagination I don't really know I don't know how much of that is Paramount stepping in and I don't know how much of that is him saying fuck it let's just film I don't let the audience decide um so am I bad it wasn't Paramount it was Universal um and so uh, what did you get to hear Volk talk about at that <laughs> I think that a lot of it was, a lot of the final product was not necessarily his, um, mm -hmm. not so much his script, because Friedkin is the kind of person to come on and sort of take control. Um, a oh, that's bit more. what the screenwriter, Jade, you know, I uh, forget his name. He was behind all those erotic thrillers like Basic Instinct and mm. uh, the infamous showgirls, but he was just like, oh, they didn't follow anything I said in Jade. I'm like, well, <laughs> maybe it wasn't yeah. good enough. <laughs> or maybe it yeah. was bad but or maybe and they did a far worse job i don't know i i go back and <laughs> forth on jade too where i'm like there's a lot of scenes where depending on the day or the mood it can be either a good cheesy midday movie or an okay 2 a.m movie but either way that ending is so abrupt and really sucks and so i can see why everyone says i don't know what i just watched even though there's a cool car chase that's kind of a throwback to his earlier movies <laughs> yeah that's kind of the thing isn't it because and i think uh, when he's funny around... <laughs> unintentionally funny uh, too much is it just russo being a spaz i don't know kind of know <laughs> yeah i think I you know there's there's an interesting thing where kind of something like the guardian i guess which is almost completely supernatural from the get-go um, he doesn't get to indulge his kind of search for authenticity that he does in, you know, pretty That's much so everything true. else. I don't know how much of that is he doesn't want to make time or if he just wants to find 
it more sincerely and he's just hoping for i don't know just <laughs> yeah so to play it, along. it's kind of like you know as i say you have to kind of watch the exorcist, exorcist as a believer um in the same way like with cruising he goes into the leather scene and he has a look around and he sort of films in in bars and everything like that and there's sort of a sense that you are in the space he's talking about um something like the guardian there's there's never a foothold in any kind of concrete reality i guess i think that's a very good point i because he's getting so sucked up in the hollywood machine of i you know it's a movie but Hmm. I don't think he's like, say, Larry Cohen, who's done a lot of good movies and a lot of bad movies, and it doesn't help that he keeps giving it to filmmakers of different tones. You know, you work for William Lustig, who's a B-movie guy, and then Sidney LeMay, who's an A-list, you know, great actor, respectable kind. And uh, I think, yeah, I think that's just that freaking, whenever, once in a while, he would get a dud script and instead of being like Scorsese where he would make it be pretty and just rely on actors or like Spielberg where he would be like, well, better luck next time. You know, it's just a sequel to a better superior original that didn't need to be made. And I'll make five other great movies this year. I, I think, yeah, I think it is one of those is like, he kind of just wanted to keep toying around with it and was going to enjoy that freedom for as long as he could until someone said, you're out of here, you're off this picture. <laughs> Yeah, absolutely. Yeah. And I think there's sort of a sense that he's indulged because of his name value, um, you know, and that sort of a horror movie from the director of The Exorcist does carry with it a certain it's amount so of weight. so much weight. So, yeah, he's <laughs> carrying this weight that Spielberg and Scorsese earned in their first few pictures. Yeah. Know, and, and that Yeah, because like if you you're sort of saying like oh well that's one of the best horror movies of all time and now we've got a horror movie from the same guy now you know that's how you're selling it (laughs) and he's it's already a losing battle because at the Mm -hmm. same time he's never going out to really make the same movie and yet he was kind of hired because they kind of was like we want another french connection we want another extra we want another yeah, and I guess that's his kind of lightning in the bottle quality that he has. Um, that's probably born of his sort of quite forceful personality and his kind of I'm gonna go immerse myself into this world. And that kind of deal, you know, I, I think that creates quite it's quite a chemical process on film then, uh, where he yeah. is you can't recreate it because it's so specific to the conditions he's created. And he's very, he adapts a lot of stuff, like you say, because of his theater experience, Mm. you know, Dan Greenberg is one of the scribes on The Guardian and a bunch of other movies. And I think that's just it. Sometimes he just, I don't know that he really makes a movie for a certain crowd, but he also doesn't really acknowledge it either. And I think that a little bit of that worked against him. A little bit of, just trying to decipher what kind of audience might have made it a little easier for the marketing guys instead of show all the shocking she- scenes in his movie. <laughs> yeah, absolutely. Yeah. I think as well, what's interesting with, with that kind of idea of him constantly being like, Oh, but this is a real thing and we have to lean into it is you get a film like the devil and father Amos, which is such a bizarre entry 
into anyone's uh, work, honestly. Um, Is that an earlier movie he did, or uh, no? Like, oh, just I, another I, movie. He what he did is he. Um, oh, I see it now. The documentary. I have not seen. Yeah, this yeah. One. Oh my god. Yes. So it's kind of terrible, um, and it has <laughs> it has the vibe of like you know those like the almost says it feels amateurs. Damn. <laughs> yeah yeah so it's you know like those history channel uh things where they sometimes go like oh Ooh. we're gonna talk about exorcism or aliens or it's kind of got that vibe in that you're talking about oh quite mark ramone's low... one of the writers this isn't good yeah quite low five footage <laughs> <laughs> quite low five footage quite um sort of bizarre recreations and reconstructions of things but it also feels quite exploitative um Ooh. so it's kind of him exploring um sort of father amorth who is uh, an exorcist uh mm -hmm. he had books out that kind of reached beyond religion and and into the the mainstream partially due to the exorcist you know he gained a lot of popularity through that um and you kind of meet this woman and i believe her name is christina who believes she is suffering from demonic possession. Oh, God. Yeah, and it, it sort of becomes Friedkin there with a the camera over everybody's shoulders um, as this family are working through it and them deciding, is she possessed, is she not? And, and again, going into, you know, Father Amos's career in a way. Um, and it's such a strange a strange little thing and it, it feels like a cash-in almost but it, it it's so strange I, yeah. and i i don't entirely understand why he did it um, apart from that link to fortunately uh a lot of those religious movies don't get a single bit of airtime on either cable tv or any promotion because the industry doesn't like them so it's like yeah <laughs> Yeah, I, I and like I say, it's it's not good either. I, I think technically it's it's not good, um, which is surprising because if he's you know good at anything, it's good at capturing you know the vibe of a place, and he just does none of that. And it, it's a very strange entry into an otherwise very interesting filmography. Yeah, I. <laughs> I got nothing. I am so glad I have not seen this one. It sounds yeah. like, again, like you have having a priest who you absolutely, you know, has said everything offensive, like the rapture will take away any non-believers. Yeah, there, there's no uh, place for you. Uh, it's like it, it just sounds like this is a person who not only is rambling and just making you say, "I am." If I wasn't so disciplined, I would slap you in the face right now. Yeah. <laughs> I, yeah, I think it, as well, there's sort of this idea, I think, that he, when he made The Exorcist, and certainly the book did a little bit of this as well, um, but both of those pieces of media had a bleed into the real world like none of his other films did. So, you know, the numbers of people who thought they might be possessed go oh, yeah. up after that movie is released. Mm -hmm. um, so in a way, it makes sense that he would revisit that and kind of look at the reality of that and particularly where they were so many years removed from it. 
Um, but that so many of the tropes and symptoms that people were coming forward with were, were from his movie. Uh, you know, the ideas of what people had was, air quotes, possession, came from his vision then. That's very true. I, I, I definitely feel like his visions are clearly someone wanted to, you know, walk the plank with him because yeah. he, he just has no uh again uh, i don't think he doesn't have any shame but i think he just uh, he's just ruthless at what he wants to get accomplished and again if you have a theater background that's pretty common too so i mean yeah i don't know i it's a shame that he kind of hit I've heard great things about Killer Joe. I have not seen it yet, mm. but uh, but I am surprised that it did. Yeah, get an X rating, and so yeah, how many theaters are going to play that? Unless it's like the Angelica, you know? Yeah, I think though he was kind of weirdly glad of the NC seventeen he got for because at least no Killer one Joe. cut his movie is like okay, so it's not going to make any money, and I'll probably be lampooned, but at least I got to do what I wanted to do. So yeah, yeah, because he was kind of like, oh, I would have to go in and and kill that film to get that to get a, an R, um, and I don't want to do that. I would rather that the film stands for what I want it to be, mm -hmm. uh, an NC seventeen. And he said, well, I don't want anyone under seventeen to see it. It's not that it's not aimed at them, so I don't really care. Uh, yeah, I, I think with the Exorcist and French Connection, he pretty much he had made enough money for him and every. It wasn't like with Milos Foreman, who, you know, his movies never made any bank, but everyone, you know, critics, studios, and audiences all did the rare reaction to it. You're like, these movies, you know, Cuckoo's Nest, you know, is so inspirational. You know, and, yeah. And great reveal of comedy and the ugly side of it. And it's like, and uh, you get him, and I think, yeah, no one ever talks about how, how bankable he is. I think everyone knows he wasn't, but everyone at the same time, you're like, he's explores such hard to talk about material and makes it entertaining. That's that's a blessing in and of itself. That anyone else tries that, it's often, you know, it can be early two thousands, you know, Spike Lee or uh, Oliver Stone, where it's just hit and miss. You either really really like it or you really dislike it, even though you like the idea behind it. <laughs> Yeah, absolutely. Uh, and I think he's such a an interesting figure because <laughs> I do get the feeling that quite a lot of the time he's absolutely full of shit. Like he's just <laughs> yes, he's his own biggest hype man, which I guess you need to sort of have survived. He's been married a multiple different like times and and I, I will I will concur with you to build on that. I do feel like the female characters in his movies they're not meant to be stupid but half the time they're flinging themselves at the guy and i'm like get out of here no <laughs> yeah this is a guy's yeah. world this is a guy's movie clearly and uh i'm telling you guys it's not that easy <laughs> i i think as well like it, it, there's something interesting with his female characters he doesn't try to make them bitchy but he does kind of sometimes have them be victims and that's kind of annoying because it's just like uh are you i, I feel like yes he's he's in that fine loop between someone like a Lucio Fulci or Argento type who just wants to be creative with the gore and 
chilling frills and suspense but then he also walks the fine line of where kind of like De Palma where he's like you're kind of an outdated 70s guy and you kind of need to get with the times here a bit dude <laughs> yeah I think it's quite interesting because he's quite sort of forward thinking in terms of as I say the the ratings and like being well I'm not going to censor that and and everything like that but then there's a socially conservative thread to a lot of his films I mean um one of the ghouls wrote an excellent article. Um, Lakaya Palmer wrote about The Exorcist and how it's kind of a reaction to women's rights coming forward and women being outside of the home, uh, for example, and particularly single mothers and everything like that. Because there's sort of a lot of finger pointing in the book and the film as to you know, the reason that Reagan is corrupted then is because she is outside of the confines of a yeah. nuclear family. So he he really doesn't really play with faith or as bluntly in anything else besides, because like even The Guardian, I mean, obviously it's a religious couple, but it's all just kind of about just, it's a home invasion by a supernatural entity in Gothic folklore, but yeah. Exorcist is like the only time he really played around with it and I, I don't know if he got some studio notes saying hey man it's a good movie but you're making you're, uh, I've got some friends of the Vatican they don't really approve of this or I kind of just don't like that if you're not a believer and you got that other shit you know I might have to pull some office politics with you if you try that shit again <laughs> yeah I, I think it, it, like I say it's it's an interesting spot to to find it find yourself in, I think, particularly with that film, because it is very much of its time, and it, it's particularly interesting yeah, you to do look it at the female nowadays. characters. If you did it nowadays, it would be probably like a Passion of the Christ kind of movie, where half the people want to see it, and other people are like, I don't know. <laughs> yeah, it's interesting as well because obviously they're going to remake or reboot or requel or, you know, insert your favorite term here, uh, The Exorcist. Like that's coming the next year or maybe further on. I don't know. But David Gordon Green is taking it on. Um, it, it's an interesting idea. Uh, and it'll be interesting to see if, kind of, I guess, those those ideas kind of get updated. Um, mm -hmm. You know, because I think if you kind of had that through line now, even though it's in the book, because that's the tricky thing with both The Exorcist and Cruising to some point is that they're both based on existing IPs. So you are kind of tied into their storytelling anyway. That's true. Um, I mean... You kind of just believe it. If it's by a priest, I might believe, even if what they're saying is total hogwash, I'm going to believe there's some kind of authority figure. So I'm like, okay. <laughs> yeah, yeah. It's it's saying something confidently enough. Um, and it's a horror movie. So I'm just like, with some yeah. fantasy elements. So I'm like, okay. So I trust that for whatever reason, by their principles, even though, I mean, it, it's kind of like the X-Files. It's like, okay, I don't believe in aliens and uh, what's the other bullshit that they a ghost and this is like okay yeah not I, good on you if you if anyone else does that that's cool but that show worked because it, again you know one of the characters believes in the other is a skeptic you know and yeah so yeah you really buy into it and 
the unpredictability of it and how it's kind of a mirror of today's world that may or may not exist or maybe it's just like any riddle where you're not meant to figure it out and so I was cool with the playfulness of it unlike plenty of other Mm. mystery or sci-fi shows which would be like okay so I feel like you're just pulling this out of somewhere (laughs) yeah yeah I I guess when you have that kind of idea the the right hand and the left hand so you have a character to identify with if you do believe and you want to watch it as a straightforward sci-fi horror show or if you want to perhaps uh hitch your wagon to the skeptic character and enjoy it as like a conspiracy thriller you can do that you know it it works both ways Mm -hmm. um but yeah the the thing coming back to friedkin kind of being an unreliable narrator in his own life (laughs) shall we say um so there's a big link between um the exorcist and cruising which is the I mean, I was so disappointed story. with it, and yet I still think about it to this day. And so it's one of those I'm like, this this movie still made a dent. It still made an impact, even though, yeah, again, there's a lot of X-rated content that couldn't be seen. And so as a result, it is using some fear mongering of the Reagan '80s era. But at the same time, it's a well-intended movie that's trying to avoid becoming an exploitation movie. So it's just like, yeah, it's, I mean, it's I, hard. I watched. I watched it recently and oh really <laughs> yeah yeah and pretty I graphic like, right <laughs> which you know I was surprised I mean maybe this is just me I didn't think it was quite as graphic as I was expecting oh I'm just talking just the knife play at the very end I'm not talking like oh, in yeah. of the material or language or other subtext that's thrown throughout yeah I I think in some ways the way he shoots in the club is quite interesting because he sort of teases quite a lot so there'll be something going on that you'll see in close-up but it's enough to obscure what's actually happening which has that that great sort of effect of setting your mind racing so (laughs) you're allowing people to fill in their own gaps you know it's like no pun intended. Um, but like, <laughs> if you if you were just gonna put like some of those acts on screen, you lose some of the power. But where he kind of moves around the club, and there's sort of a sort of a barrier in the way, so mm-hmm. you can see something that's going on, but not all of it. And I think particularly for the time it's made, that's gonna have you know moral guardians up in arms. And I think it was sort of said that, yeah, Al Pacino was terrified of being sent into some of the areas they were shooting. Yeah, he was, it was legit not areas. Yeah. <laughs> um, but so, yeah, there, there's a, obviously you, you'll probably know this because it's like one of the big bits of trivia that comes out of The Exorcist. But during all those horrible medical scenes, there's a, um, a technician there who turned out to be a serial killer i didn't um, know i if i heard that uh, i flushed it the minute i heard it that's okay insane. so <laughs> oh, again a collision God. of my particular trivia mind uh, so uh paul bates is, is the guy's name and it was kind of like he'd oh, got that geez. he was an actual uh radiology technician um and then after being in that he sort of he was always quite troubled um after he was in that film he started uh drinking again went down a spiral he's 
mostly identified as having killed a critic um <laughs> as part of his thing like it's 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 kind of wild but eventually friedkin tells the story of visiting him much later on and kind of somewhere along the way it's put together that he is potentially the serial killer who is the basis for the killer in cruising oh okay um, so paul bateson you said was his name yeah paul bates okay yeah. yes he was the radiologist guy in the exorcist oh my god yep and he is potentially who the writer of the novel for cruising was writing about the crimes of um and then friedkin picks up the uh the rights to that novel without knowing that that was kind of the guy that was probably responsible for the crimes he was recreating wow yeah <laughs> But uh, hasten to add, Friedkin possibly full of shit. So <laughs> I, I, I wouldn't necessarily take his word for it. Yeah, and then the whole debate on if he's even alive or not. I mean, fuck yeah, him. yeah, he doesn't deserve any of our attention. This is what I hate about the media: is do not give these pricks airtime. <laughs> yeah, yeah, it's just such an interesting sort of clash i guess that comes from and one dent against the tv show mindhunter because they portray him on screen there i'm like no 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 go against someone who's just you know already in pop culture enough <laughs> but don't adapt him <laughs> yeah i think it's kind of an interesting sort of um question about all serial killer media i guess is yeah. how you show them and and everything like that and i think obviously in in cruising I mean, it is a product of its time. Uh, so there are sort of outdated attitudes. But I do think it is rather sympathetic to some degree, um, you know, particularly to the friend he makes and the situation that's going on with his boyfriend that, you know, the, you have nice characters within it who are just kind of caught up in this horrible situation. Um, and the, also the majority of the bar patrons and Pacino being well trouble. used because he's, you know, he's had it before. You know, he played a gay, you know, hostage taker in Dog Day Afternoon and then yeah, having yeah. to, I forget what other movie is in. I think it's Sea of Love where he's like, I'm not gay or somebody gets in a homophobic argument with some cops. This <laughs> is like, yeah. and now, and years before he's like, now I'm just going to be hoo-ha and everything shitty. Yeah. And, and it was like perfect timing there and, the rest of the cast was pretty inspired, but it wasn't about it. It was all just kind of about, uh, you know, just. <laughs> uh, yeah, but I, I think there's sort of, I, I do feel like that whole situation is, as I say, Friedkin always going direct to the source. So he's like, oh, who do I want to, uh, you know, I want to get these medical procedures right for the film. So I will go and find genuine medical texts, um, you know, cool. to make sure that those are, you know, that the process is reflected. Um, and, and yeah, they're particularly horrible processes. You know, the, the needle in the neck particularly is, is not very nice. Um, but the, as a side effect of that, he gets sort of absorbed into this much wider cultural moment and and some real ugliness you know 
yes. making a film about something and it turns out that you gave him a part in a film like you know seven years earlier is incredibly strange <laughs> I, and I mean you know they still don't don't know the full extent of uh, Bateson's crimes which is obviously often the case um, and we never probably will. <laughs> I mean, no, no. Anyway, particularly if he's sort of long gone. He could have um, killed plenty of other people he doesn't remember. <laughs> yeah, yeah. So, I, But I think that's kind of Friedkin almost... Yeah, his kind of need to be at the source kind of drives everything he does. Um, so... Yes. He's not going to go get a permit before he does a car chase. He's just going to do no. a car chase and hope everything works out. You know, it's. I, 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 there was a story the other day as well about, um, and the film isn't coming to me at the moment, but about the fake money. <laughs> and that apparently he has been paying for uh, things with fake money made as part of one of his films for some time now. Oh. Or certainly for a period of time. And <laughs> he waited. And, and again, this is why I, I tend to lean towards the idea of him being, you know. Full of shit. Yeah, no, I yeah. Think, I, think, I think you, uh, the judges ruled in favor of your case. I think you <laughs> summed up um, that. Because he, wait, he waited until the statute of limitations for using fake money had run out before he confessed. And before that... Yeah, you can't incriminate me, buddy. <laughs> yeah, before that, people were like, um, there's a lot of these fake bills and we think they might be linked to your film. And he's like, no, get a warrant then. Oh, yeah, you know, do what you like. <laughs> and they didn't. Um, and it turned out, potentially now he was. But he's waited until the statute of limitations has expired. So he gets to kind of look edgy without the threat of going to prison. <laughs> <laughs> which you know makes sense for him but you know oh only a freaking would do that yeah yeah I, I, but I think that's that's the thing that sort of positions him as sort of one of the most prominent American filmmakers out there and and why he kind of attracts so much attention now because he he can tell a story not only on film but in interview he makes for quite a compelling subject oh a thousand percent i can't yeah, there's plenty of movies i've wanted to see for years and i just i never got around to it but i, I wanted to see it <laughs> yeah um uh, uh, there's just a dozen of them and i can see why people even debate on whether the ending is good but i think unlike him He's not getting too cute for his own good or just because, you know, it didn't work out. It's kind of more of a matter of, hey, you know, I just, it, it's just as good as we're going to get. It's just what we got to go with. Yeah. I, I, think, I think as well, he's obviously, um, Alexandro Felipe did a documentary about the making of The Exorcist. And it's so yes. interesting because you have like two sides of him almost. So you have this kind of guy who is obsessed with the artistic process and all these art references within the framing and the design of everything. Um, and then you also have the kind of spinning a yarn. <laughs> right. Uh, Friedkin, both in the same place. So every now and again, I mean, uh, Alexander Felipe is so good at those visual essay documentaries where 
he will tell you something and then immediately show you the shot that proves it. <laughs> and there's a few times in this where you just can't do it because no. Friedkin is has a complex relationship with the truth, I think. Um, it is weird. It's like, I don't know. I, I, I definitely concur that he must have been in a dark place. You don't know how much of the religion is, hey, it's bullshit, but I got to stick with it. I've just been incorporated into me since day one. And how much of it is is like, I will... Uh, I mean, it, I've kind of felt that way with Scorsese. Sorry to knock an otherwise cool filmmaker, but when he's been close to people like Henry Hill or the Wolf of Wall Street himself, I'm just like, oh, fuck off. Don't, no. <laughs> don't, don't glamorize them, especially when you claimed and kind of failed to not glamorize them. <laughs> yeah, I guess it, it, it's sort of, if you're, if you're interested in a subject and you get the opportunity to be close to them, I can see how that would be quite a seductive idea. And I mean, I've seen um, it all the time. I've seen plenty of Jewish, Black, and Latino celebrities help each other out, even though they're otherwise infamous figures. That You see Black celebrities helping out people like Frank Lucas, the original American gangster, or Mike Tyson. You're like, okay, don't get that, whatever. Yeah. <laughs> uh, yeah. I mean, it, it, it's sort of, it's interesting, isn't it? Because like with Scorsese, he's so ingrained in that world mm -hmm. you see women praising Hugh after i'm like uh not someone i would want to <laughs> give a good reputation to but okay <laughs> especially when he's kind of you know well and derogatory there's lots, business. More, <laughs> lots more coming out about that now i think because i think it's perfectly uh you know acceptable that some women would be fine in that environment uh, and oh, yeah, no, it with I mean, only good experiences and this but is I, where we sound like contrarians we're just like okay if you want to be a sex worker that's one thing but don't act like someone's you know a high highbrow industry this is a lowbrow industry you know yeah I, I think as well it's sort of the the question over people's safety and people's consent that's the the oh, most a thousand percent um uh, this within is like, all this this is like when Liam Neeson speaks out on gun control and yet, you know, does violent Charles Bronson Stallone-esque movies. So it's just like, hmm, I mean, I get it. I mean, I do like a violent movie, but at the same time, if it's uh, glamorizing gun people to strip away, you know, rights and everything and make it easy for anyone to get a gun, I, I, I definitely, you know, it's the same thing with military movies. It's like, okay, if it... If it's a recruitment ad, at least have it be a bunch of stupid explosions and end in 90 minutes. If it's an overblown Top Gun type movie, then no, thank you. And then that's when I'm like, okay, it's it's a silly, you know, Navy recruitment ad, and that's not entertainment. That's propaganda. So. Yeah, I mean, I, we have um, we have ads over here that have kind of come under scrutiny quite a lot for for army adverts because they kind of lean into making them look like a video game or um or like an action movie here in the uk the us is just as bad because they got keith mm -hmm. david of all people narrating it and let's be wow. honest keith david's an awesome dude so guess what yeah. if you get an awesome actor you know that's just as bad as if you were to get someone like tommy lee jones or morgan freeman then it's like okay well all bets are off you got godlike celebrity narrating this and yeah you, you've now basically have brainwashed a bunch of people who are easily persuaded to basically sacrifice their life. And it's even harder because you're like, yes, we need armed forces. It's, it's the same thing with 
cops and crime is like crime's never going to go away, but it's played up sometimes in other areas versus other states. And same thing with cops is like, not all cops are bastards, but there are a lot of bastards. So you do got to, you know, put the plunger on and say, you're out of here. No, no, no paid leave. You are officially not a cop. (laughs) You know? Yeah. I think that's the thing. It's like systems are broken. Um, the union because they allow people through <laughs> that are, are not suited to to that particularly oh totally because um, we need unions in order to get stuff done and at the same time unions can also pull some politics by saying okay you get five get out of jail free cards you know unless the attorney comes knocking you know yeah I, I, and i think that this is kind of where you where you kind of lie with a lot of the the filmmaker stuff is you have these people who embed themselves within a system that kind of allows them to do whatever they want. Um, they're not questioned, and particularly like the director as auteur, I think gets a lot of um, leeway that would not be afforded to, say, a first-time director. Or mm. you get sort of... I, I mean, how many, for example actresses have come out in the last few years and said like well i've been called difficult but here's what actually happened i know it's like yeah and all these years and the media bought into it they bought the mm. story they didn't question the source the persons and I, I think that's just it we we were so used to whatever is fed to us can't question it you are dead in the water and no one would ever be interested in asking the other side of the story <laughs> it was like well, who exactly? Oh, that person who always lies said that, and the media bought it for a dollar. Well, that's yeah, not cool. So, so yeah, it, it's interesting. I think particularly that that so many uh, of the kind of the films focus on crime and criminals or sort of flawed protagonists at, at the sort of forefront of it is that you are asked to. I think identify with flawed characters which I think is really important because depiction isn't necessarily endorsement um so I I think sort of you are invited to question certain choices within that um but also it does have that Hollywood sheen uh it can't get away from that you know you're not talking (laughs) about an indie movie you are generally talking about studio money and how often do you see a great historical epic with just phenomenal production value themes to soak up and then it's ruined by miscast actors or it's good up until the last 10 minutes where it just it has to wave the flag and you're like no 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 come on and then the cheesy trumpet sound you're like you guys are so stuck in the 40s this doesn't work anymore yeah, absolutely. And where you have a system that only allows certain people to step outside of that and overrule it, you know, like... Overrule, yes. You're in contempt of court. <laughs> you know, Friedkin can say, well, I don't care what the studio says about Killer Joe. It's going to be an NCC-17 and I'm not that changing it. says a it. lot because, like, just about... He's worked... Unlike most of these filmmakers we covered, he has not worked for the same consistent guy. He's worked for Fox, Warner Brothers, Paramount, Universal. For whatever reason, I thought he was mainly Universal and Paramount. But now he's got a lot of everyone. And you want to talk those independent movies he did recently? Yeah, like those are more different independent studios like Lionsgate 
uh, Fox searchlight types. So I'm like, wow. Well, so those are the kinds of people left who want to work with them. And yet it's kind of in his favor because I I think it's way better than like, say, Jonathan Demme, who, you know, you do a lot of hit films back to back and then kind of don't do anything else after that. And then just do a few occasional documentaries. (laughs) This is like, whoa, 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 what happened? (laughs) Um, Yeah, and I think, I I do wonder though, because... Friedkin, to me at least, doesn't seem to be mentioned all the time within that kind of uh, Spielberg and Scorsese and th- those kind of foremost American filmmakers. He's very similar to them, even though he wasn't part of their circle, which is just wild. <laughs> yeah, I mean, he's got a, 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 a wide-ranging collection of films all with some level of personal stamp. I mean, if you were doing the auto theory checklist, he would tick a lot of boxes. <laughs> yes. uh, but I, I'm not sure as well if his name uh, sells things quite as much as a Scorsese or Spielberg either. And I think perhaps that is because like, his stamps are thematic rather than content related in a way uh, so like Spielberg you know for like quite big Amblin <laughs> yes. style almost giant epics with larger yeah. life performances and some occasional fairy tale that's either soapy or just the right amount of everyone can agree on it even the hardened guys who aren't easily amused <laughs> yeah like it, it's sort of really for the most part popular filmmaking that you can you know you can say sort of sell to anybody about saying well this is a great filmmaker and he makes films about this great um Scorsese obviously you've got a mix of like that gangster anti-hero kind of vibe throughout everything um Friedkin is kind of all over the place I, I I think as you said at the top of the discussion you know he makes uh, sort of a thriller movie he makes car chase Some movies he makes horror that, movies yeah. he's he's sort of not as as easily recognizable i think that's very true because like uh in more recent ads i didn't see anything saying you know from the guy who brought you this like i i saw yeah. nothing like um and I think he just kind of got to the point where he's like, okay, I'm now, after Jade, you know, flopped uh, and Blue Chips was kind of a whatever kind of just filler movie. I think at that point, he's like, I got to take what I can get and whatever I can compromise, I'll insert it there. But yeah, I I mean, uh, just talking a little bit about his later work, I mean, Sorcerer is kind of another one that's just, it was always obscure. It was on laser discs and VHS and for the longest time didn't get a DVD or Blu-ray release and then still appreciated similar. It's inspired by a classic French film, The Wages of Fear. These guys have a nuke or something and they're trying to get out of the jungle mm. in a South American country. But um, it seems like To Live and Die in LA, I often see as like one of his most talked about movies. And when I saw it, it didn't help that it was on edited cable and I was one of those like, yeah, this started a brief feud between little known fact, this started a brief feud between him and Miami vice creator, Michael Mann, because the style was just so similar to that in his movie Manhunter. 
I love Manhunter. <laughs> oh yeah, a great movie. film. But <laughs> for whatever reason, I saw those both back to back. Believe it or not, I didn't even realize yeah. it. I'm like. Uh, I was just a fan of William Peterson, not so much on CSI until years later, which freaking later had to direct some key episodes on. But uh, compared to other filmmakers who kind of had to pay the bills and were kind of forced to just direct a bunch of select episodes of TV where they have no creative say, really. Yeah. Uh, uh, he didn't really do too much of that. Uh, he did a 12 Angry Men uh, TV version for Showtime within a great all-star cast. Um, but yeah, with which also reunited with him with William Peterson, but yeah, I I try I should rewatch To Live and Die in L.A. and I'm not sure if I will like it again. What is your take on this movie? I I do you know To Live and Die in, in L.A. is the money one is is the one he was making fake uh, fake money on, and I couldn't <laughs> see it in time for this, and I. No, all good. Because I wanted to revisit it. Um, I was but... one of those where people would often talk about the shocking content rather than the actual substance. And I just always kind of found it just kind of a flat story. But it was interesting. I can totally understand why it got adapted because it was based yeah. on a book by Gerald Patovich. And he was yeah. a former Secret Service agent who made all these. He's kind of like Tom Clancy. <laughs> you know, you do time in the service and then you basically write a bunch of escapism that hollywood adapts <laughs> yeah i mean i mean it, it's it's interesting isn't it that so much of his kind of work is is adapted it is adapted on existing things because it's it's sort of easy if you're writing your own stuff and taking that forward to be like well this is my sort of personal through line but it's also also like he has to be a a chameleon in a way in that he has to intercede with um, you know the writer's work because I know there was there's some discussion in Leap of Faith about uh, the screenplay for The Exorcist and Blatty had taken out the first uh, bit set in Iraq uh, and he was like oh I d didn't have that involved and he was like no you have to have that you know Friedkin is like no we need that because you have to set that scene you have to introduce that element because it's going to be there all the way through um and I think it's kind of interesting that he's working with an author who's cutting up his own work and deciding what works visually and what doesn't um to to kind of make that happen so yeah the, all those adaptations that he's dealing and particularly with like something like Bug which is sort of from a theatre background but then turning it into something that that relies on some really heady, sweaty visuals throughout throughout <laughs> the way that you couldn't really do in in a theatre setting. Oh yeah, especially with Sorcerer, it is definitely one of those like, oh man, <laughs> I'm just floating off the scenery. And yeah, his movies are all basically word of mouth. And mm. basically, since he had those free hit movies, you know, just yeah, extra develop French connection and. I guess live and die in LA and it's like he pretty much had the right to do whatever the hell he wanted to do and yeah I kind of question whether you could stop him anyway to be honest no, <laughs> like, I, I think he's good. he's kind of a force of nature in that he's um you know the the saying about oh it's easier to ask for forgiveness than permission like I think he sums that up entirely in his sort of filmmaking philosophy is like well we'll do it and if it works, great. If it doesn't, whatever. Totally. 
you know, I, I, I think he's quite uncompromising in a way that lots of other people aren't. It's it sort of, I think about, obviously we've mentioned Scorsese quite a lot. And I think <laughs> Scorsese's sort of relationship with someone like Thalma Schoonmaker, who is his editor on pretty much everything. Um, and it, it, it feels, you know, that you have that consistency between his films because he's almost always working with similar people. Mm -hmm. um, and I think, again, Friedkin doesn't really have that. He, he's sort of, there are some, but <laughs> you get the impression that he's, he's not afraid to burn a bridge, uh, you know. I think anyone that bridges that he died, I think pretty much most of it all just came out with The Guardian. It just was a chaotic enough film production to where he's like, mm -hmm. okay, so it's going to be a while before we ask your number, you know, call it again. <laughs> yeah, yeah. I, I, I think it's interesting with that as well because... Like, I don't know how Ghostwatch was received in the U.S. Ghostwatch. So, oh, yeah, the, another documentary he did. So, yeah, like, Stephen Volk wrote, wrote Ghostwatch, and that was in 1992. And it was shown over here as, um, as a documentary. Oh, Stephen Volk. Yeah, I heard about yeah. that. I didn't... But... Yeah, and it kind of went out like, oh, this is a legit thing. But it was a Halloween prank type thing going wrong so i guess he was quite notorious here but i'm not sure that it was that or whether it was his work on gothic and the case that had sort of attracted him it seemed like ken russell that was at his peak before he later also stopped doing edgy movies and kind of resorted to tv stuff so i think that's just it i think yeah. everyone had their moment and then when different studio regulations and everything take place in the 90s, then it just got to where it's like, okay, <laughs> insurance yeah. now a thing. There's all these other things that we hear one thing we don't like. We're now going to have to do more bureaucracy and policing. Um, yeah. I mean, it's hard to think of it. Like, I think for me, when I first watched The Guardian, I was like, oh, this would be much better if it was a Sam Raimi written by Stephen Volk. <laughs> because I think it would have had a little bit more of like it's tongue in its cheek some Terry Argento movie with <laughs> <laughs> yeah like, I, yeah I think like Friedkin just plays it incredibly straight and it doesn't work it just doesn't I did see I, some reviews that look at it now who find it a fun but flawed movies who believe that some of the effects guys kind of wanted an excuse to kind of just show off their material and yeah. like to say, you know, when it comes down to just get it done, but will it work? Will it actually be believable? That's a whole different subject. Yeah, yeah. It's got kind of a flatness to it, I guess. Um, that you it's feel just like too it, much, it, even though it's given us what we want, it just feels rushed. <laughs> yeah, it, it it's got a flatness that it wouldn't have had if it kind of went. Do you know what? We can have a little bit of fun with it. Because um, <laughs> I, I, like I say, I think Friedkin takes himself very seriously. He takes his films very seriously. So I think it's just him, a result of him being part of that generation. He just didn't yeah. know any better, and someone. I'm pretty much the only person we have to blame is that it is like, well, whoever brought you up should have probably just, I don't know, should have maybe should have been at some hippie riots or something. And just <laughs> opened up your mind. It, 
was it the Guardian that Sam Raimi left to go do Darkman? Because yes, they, they, he exactly had to it. like, yeah, to and sort of, and I guess that makes sense, you know. <laughs> kind of blasphemous though that they didn't even remotely credit him as a producer because it seems like so many other people that will be their deal is like, oh, I'm part of the producers guild. You gotta give me a producer credit because I worked on it, even though none of my material retained. But yet, much like we got yeah. Stanley Kubrick without a credit on artificial intelligence before Spielberg takes over. We got no Raimi credit on the Guardian before freaking steps in. So, Yeah, I mean, the opening scene feels quite Raimi. And there are a few bits that you kind of go, You might could have sworn he did it instead and then got taken over midway through. So you don't know if it's just, was he not part of a union before being asked or what? You you, you don't know. Oh, maybe the kind of temptation to be like, go do Darkman. And he's like, yeah, bye. Don't let the door hit you. <laughs> I'm <laughs> off. <laughs> but it's kind of an interesting thing to, to hear really how those products dude. come together. Yeah. <laughs> oh, man, that that's a trip. It was so fun to research that. <laughs> so there's this other movie. He has a satire called Dill the Century, which was probably is still to date probably freaking's lowest ranked movie it's just a satire with gregory hines sigourney weaver and chevy chase (laughs) just kind of making fun of contra type material okay and it just it, it did not hit and you know i'm no crazy about chevy chase i know he's an asshole and not He's done some funny movies and the rest of the time he's been impossible to work with. And this is one of those I'm like, well, did these guys not get along? Did these guys not stroke each other's ego? Did, or was it oh just one gosh. of those? Like you say, it's a funny movie and they picked the worst possible person to helmet who's a serious guy. <laughs> totally yeah, it, it just feels wild to imagine that you go, oh, we, we need to make a comedy. Get me William Friedkin. Right. Like, it just, These are totally it, policies he endorses. I, it's no mistake. <laughs> I did see somewhere that he was a conservative, but I'm like, okay, whatever. He's an old school guy who seems to make a lot of progressive movies, even though he has a lot of fear mongering in them. Um, it's weird, but then I see uh, Rules of Engagement, you know, at the turn of the century in the 2000s, and I really dug that one, but it was hated. It was considered an Isla, Islamic phobic movie. I'm not sure if you ever saw this one with Tommy Lee Jones and Sam Jackson. No, I don't think I have. No. It was another one. It just it basically just part two generations of war where these two Vietnam War veterans then later on a dangerous mission in modern day Yemen and wow. then basically have to, you know, basically Tommy Lee Jones owes his life to being saved by Sam Jackson in Vietnam and so basically he has to defend him in court right okay and the screenplay was by Stephen Gagum the same year he won you know for best adapted screenplay for Traffic and later wrote movies like Syriana such yeah uh I don't have any issues with this movie but there are moments in it which I think had anyone else done it it would have totally backfired and been a cluster yeah, I, I guess it's the thing with Friedkin that because he is sort of quite difficult to corral, um, <laughs> that it is this sort of no arguing 
with that final product product and if you decide that yeah that's not acceptable <laughs> i don't know i think he's really complicated because because anyone else could have done it there are, yeah there is there are socially conservative things within his films but then he's sort of quite embedded in the art scene um which is quite permissive and and things like that and he constantly references artworks and obviously is very anti kind of censorship and kind of feels like he's sensitive to certain things but you just can't get quite get the measure of him and, I, think and I feel like he's easily changeable he's easily coerced mm. like he's kind of a politician in a filmmaker <laughs> he could yeah, yeah change his mood one session and then say oh i guess we're not gonna get anything done oh, let's just have, go to the casino have some mac and cheese you know <laughs> Yeah, I think, you know, he's, I think, yeah, we, we've kind of spoken a bit about how he moves from project to project and it's sort of, you can pick out the themes that are similar, but you would never, you would almost never watch two films of his and go, oh, these are both by That's William Friedman, if person? no one told you. Yeah, um, he does follow it. You see certain mentality, the no-holds-barred kind of approach, but other than that, you don't know how much of it is, you know, got to pick the next best thing versus you had the, you let all the cats out of the bag and now you got very few magic tricks. And so now all you can do is just do a movie that Hmm. you very passionately love versus I'm doing it, but you know, I'm pulling a Coppola. I'm doing a movie I don't want to do to the movie I do want to do. It's a little bit of that, but yeah. I mean, with this one, it could easily be a very above average episode of Law and Order and in, in CIS, you know, but with military lawyers. But then it's interesting in that basically the main, it's a very Marine type movie where yeah. what it does so well is also one of its flaws where again very plausible very believable and yet you know the opposing attorneys have their own agenda every and pull it does much like courage under fire let alone rashomon does everyone's got a different side of all the war crimes committed in the movie so it is intriguing in that yes you are getting distorted viewpoints but it's also basically it ends with no resolution it's like okay all those people are dead what could have avoided it how much of it it could have definitely gained a bit of extra traction had it i can't believe i'm saying this because like any other movies like these have often felt like really bad just jingoistic crapola Mm. like i i somehow like this much kind of like the kingdom or lone survivor where i'm just basically you can't take the warrior blood and sweat out of a marine Mm. but at the same time it does feel like there could have been a little i don't it's one of those it's not perfect but it's really not worthy of any critical uh bashing but yet something could have gone a little farther and yet at the same time i feel like he was the right person to basically channel and that basically this whole situation is fucked and basically yeah, you can't take the marine out of the marine unless you just want to dishonorably discharge him. You know? Yeah, I guess there's 
there's kind of an element to him that's quite it's quite given to no resolution as well that he's not particularly interested in something that you can just draw very clean lines under um mm-hmm. you know i i think one of the moments i i really love uh again reverting back to the exorcist as i always do um there's sort of a moment at the conclusion where it's sort of said oh she won't be aware of any of it and you kind of relax a little uh, she looks at the dog collar and then hugs him and you kind of think no there is some of her that knows and that sort of throws that conclusion off for me uh, yeah. because it's not the happy ending um and i mean it's not happy ending because obviously we get exorcist 2 which is best not talked about at all <laughs> isn't that so funny how <laughs> supposed to do the third movie and the second one was by john borman who yeah i will honestly say i kind of find overhyped but he, he did he was not a fan of the first movie and for whatever reason someone had the bright idea to ask him to do the worst possible movie known to mankind so it's like uh it's so bad because why would this... you hire someone who hates the original movie it's yeah yeah it's so bad it's so so very very bad but that almost that's almost a perfect conclusion because he allows you to believe in this sort of quite warm and cuddly thing of like, yeah, she's been through it, but she doesn't know. And then instantly introduce this tiny little thing that in, that sort of suggests that no, oh, she totally. is burdened with it. Oh, well, no, that is a good point because there are many filmmakers who would have probably just, again, have a poli- political kind of, shadiness where it's like well what they don't know can't hurt them i'm like yeah but you're being dishonest (laughs) yeah and it's kind of the whole thing of that is like religion kind of saves the day but not for caris um super friends will rise again (laughs) yeah it, it it's kind of i think a too clean ending on the exorcist would be a problem um, I, it would have rung false so basically that was his compromise like it's happy but with compromises where no one will ever know the true secret <laughs> yeah I, and you don't know the extent of it you don't know if she's just aware that there have been a lot of priests knocking about and you know she's she somehow equates that or whether she's been there the whole time because there are hints throughout the film obviously like the the help me the bubbles up on her stomach that yes there is some part of her in there um and mm-hmm. present to the events at all times and that she's kind of got to live with what happened in a way that Karis doesn't because obviously the choice he makes is to exit quite swiftly out a window and you know right he doesn't have to be burdened with that knowledge he goes he takes it with him He's she pretty much a blood behind. sweating guys, yeah. It's <laughs> just yeah. sweating tears. Yeah, so it, it, it's it's an interesting thing, and I, I think he's again, maybe again, this is why he sits sort of outside that thing is people want clean endings, they want resolution. More more often than not, they want a kind of happy ending. Um and I think with him he's he's content to throw in that final barb that makes you think about it and keep coming back to it a thousand percent and i gotta say for a man who had to kind of just narry the field 
he doesn't really fall as restricted say to not wanting to do a movie he still clearly believes in making all his movies like i say just intense and very in the moment um i think the biggest issue with when he has movies that he doesn't really talk about it's just more of a matter of okay that's the studio picture just staying busy yeah yeah i've got to pay the bills which which i guess is is a reality for every filmmaker you, you know you do have have things that are not passion projects uh like the cat squad films he did for nbc these are some very forgettable men on a mission kind of movies but to his to the to this day he would still say one of the best actors he ever worked with was steve james who was in those movies you might know him as you know the black martial artist in those American Ninja cheesy. Oh, okay, movies. yeah, yeah. Good actor who's yeah. in a lot of lowbrow movies, and here he is in these time filler movies. And for whatever reason, someone thought, let's do one movie and then let's do another. We're not sure if it should be a show. So it's basically a serious version of MacGyver, so it doesn't really work. <laughs> yeah, I th- I think as well, a sort of as he's he's grown older he seems to have a greater respect for actors that i think wasn't there in the beginning um yeah how they can make or break a movie (laughs) that follows his kind of hitchcock um interest and bit of an obsession really it totally makes sense why he worked with some of them like we would hear sometimes tommy lee jones might have a uh uh be angry one minute and is like well that's perfect work with a director who can stand to be angry and you know, Bug has Ashley Judd, same kind of person who's known for temper tantrums. <laughs> and uh, yeah. again, we, I mentioned Michael Bean. Michael Bean is very passionate, will speak his foul mouthed opinion at everything. So <laughs> perfect. He worked twice with Freakin and on both movies. <laughs> He's just involving yeah. serial killers. I guess that, that would be the worst thing to have someone who's kind of meek and mellow go with Friedkin. Um, because he's just gonna absolutely run roughshod over them and actually I get the impression with him that particularly sort of in later work he does want to tune into what makes people tick um, and get it out of them that way and I think that's much better (laughs) as a solution than doing what he was doing previously which is putting people at risk and abusing people um, to get the results he wants. I mean, surely better to sit down with someone and figure out what it is you can use and you can work together on that um, to get the result that you're both looking for. Totally. <laughs> Hit it till, you know, it's just hitting a dead horse. <laughs> it's, it's no good yeah. anymore. And yeah. Unfortunately, it, it does get to that point where you're just like, okay, well, it's what you got to put something in the can eventually so (laughs) yeah it it sort of feels like there's there's a a financial benefit as well to speaking to an actor beforehand and figuring out how you're going to get to them rather than allowing it to you know get onto a set and figure it out when you're there um and then finding out that there's a massive clash of personalities or everyone's coming at it from a different angle. Um, so certainly he seems like he's he's mellowed maybe a little bit. <laughs> I don't know. I think so. I think you're on to something. I think he's definitely decided, you know, time to just 
Uh, I don't think he has anything really to be as angry about so much anymore. I think he's just now is just like, hey, mm. I came, I saw, I did. Um, but it is kind of wild how, um, for lack of a better take on it, um, it seems like um, he's he said all he's really needed to say and Mm. he he said all his personal movies and i mean like we talked about before once you get to the 2000s you're like no key illustration did you have the chance of seeing the hunted with benicio del toro or bug with ashley judd and michael shannon i've seen bug yeah okay yeah the hunted was interesting because it was you know a rambo kind of plot and he worked with a former Marine who's like now an actual tracker and sportsman. And so there you go. You get the opportunity for someone whose skills can be exaggerated for a movie. You know, you've got, again, you know, just a a Rambo born identity kind of plot where, and Tommy Lee Jones, once again, in the fugitive mode, I must, I'm a former Marine. I trained this killer and now he's, you know, stopped doing all these dangerous missions and he's, fighting his own war i gotta stop him and bug was again i think you could say the better version of post exorcist post Mm. the guardian where it is you got two people who again a parasite is eating her from within side and she has to decide to die with her lover you know it's like that's a lot of heated discussion in either movie and like you say i didn't see either of them playing up the whole involvement this is a movie by William Friedkin so yeah yeah I don't know if he had a bad enough deal with it but once again he's working with playwright and actor Tracy Letts you know August Ocean's County fame and he works again with him on Killer Joe so yeah it's just I think as you were saying earlier as well though like Friedkin is almost a moments director so um you get notoriety from him a lot so (laughs) Killer Joe was sold on the fact that it was, you know, NC-17 and there was a fried chicken scene that was notorious. And, you know, if you can just go into something and be like, oh, yeah, this new movie with the fried chicken scene, that almost sells it, you know, in the same way as he would sell his his earlier films, you know, with a little bit of panic around them. And lots Um, of panic, lots of fear mongering. Can't help it. <laughs> you know, and the the reaction to it is is kind of, and I think he plays both cards on that. He he's kind of going, yes, I'm gonna uh, photograph this really shocking thing, but also, you know, well, this guy isn't a hero. This guy isn't, you know, it's sort of a very morally grey area. Um, For which better is or worse, sort of, <laughs> yeah, he he can ramp it up for press. And to to be like, yeah, the shocking scene you'll you know never see come in, and that always sells. Do you know what I mean? If you can say to someone uh, that you've made a film and there's an incredibly shocking scene, I mean, particularly now, I, I, I like I do wonder how a filmmaker like Friedkin would release a film now where you get sort of bite-sized film criticism on things like tiktok where scenes get taken out of isolation and you know oh man unfortunately i do kind of feel like i hate to say this and i can't confirm but i also 
you know, given what kind of statements he makes in this movies, I wouldn't be surprised if he took this route. I'm sure he would do the whole oh, America's too politically correct. Oh, I can't mm-hmm. make a movie I want to make. But he's more of a gentleman where he's not going to say it because he knows it would be unpopular. kind of. You know? Yeah, I think as well, like, he would he would have a nerve because for someone who has made a career he had enough nerve already and he saw where it got him yeah it's like if he's made a career out of saying i've done whatever i've wanted all the time to suddenly say i can't do that now well why it sounds like a you problem i thought you were the master (laughs) filmmaker you can do whatever you want it's yeah i thought you couldn't be constrained you know you've done whatever you wanted all these years what's changed so i think as a counter you could even say that i mean as a counter you could probably say that he could do it but he doesn't want to be bothered with it it's more trouble than it's worth he won't make any money he won't yeah i think that that was thing i mean obviously looking at something like the devil and father amos he's sort of very clearly self-funded that i i would imagine because there's not a lot of it had to because it wasn't not a pure flicks movie and it's too dark for even their religious propaganda but at the same time it's not going to make god's not dead money because it's not even a feel-good movie or a giant political statement that many people sometimes violently get behind so it's 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 like it's like at at best a curio for people who, who kind of like the exorcist but then there's something really uncomfortable about it right like i say the the standard of equipment is not there you know he's taken himself off to to rome and he's done you know like very very budget reconstructions like you said history channel by the numbers documentary yeah and it's just very strange because you you kind of think this is not I mean, if this is a passion project, I can't feel any passion. (laughs) I think his passion could easily be dead. And at the same time, like, because of all the bizarre and yet somewhat stimulating movies, he's just the rare person who, he, he fortunately has kept his mouth shut for the most part. He's had some occasions, but he's had some other moments where he's like, okay, well, However you feel, at least you weren't a dick about it. (laughs) Well, yeah, I think he's always kind of been quite open about where he is with certain things, and and he's quite changeable. And and as you say, he kind of knows when to be quiet, which is why I'm kind of so interested about, um, obviously, the Exorcist remake coming out. Because you know uh, that people are going to try and get the quote from him. Whoa, whoa. I thought that was just a continuation, like a reboot sequel. I, I'm not, I'm not entirely sure what it is. Uh, but Either way, this... it's by what's his name, the comedian g- guy who does all those comedy s- films. Yeah, and... David Gordon Green. Yeah. yeah. Um, and he's obviously it seems like they're trying to pitch it in the same way as they've done the three the Halloweens. Yeah. Yeah, yeah. So it's kind of like how does a three film Exorcist continuation, uh re-go over of of the exorcist work um and you just know that there are journalists itching to get a quote from friedkin on it and i'm fascinated as to who gets it out of him and what it'll be (laughs) 
Yeah. Because I don't think he's going to be polite. Let's put it that way. Uh, this is very true. And I think that's just it. I think everyone else has wanted to save face and not be accused of asking him loaded questions because they don't want to deal with that press. So I think they're just like, okay, you're either giving give me something or if I feel like I just can't print it, I'm just not going to bother. I don't want that negative attention. On it. Yeah. And, and it's and so equally, wild. He's so, such a strong personality that if he doesn't want to give you an answer, he's not going to. So no. then you've kind of pushed your shot out and now you've got nothing. <laughs> you know? You're tempting me for the last time. <laughs> I'm done. So yeah, I I mean I'm interested to see see what would come out because yeah, I, I and also I'm interested in kind of obviously I don't watch um uh law and order type type of things, but the idea of a director like him moving into TV is also really interesting. And obviously that's where um, a lot of people are ending up now sort of I think of David Fincher's work in Mindhunter um, and that's so good and so rich because that's kind of where a lot of money is going and I do feel like Friedkin would probably be the type to follow that money um, and it'd be kind of interesting to that's see what he point. could do because I've thought about that before I would see sometimes people do forum uh, chats about hey you know you want a good action movie with, you know, drama and characters with a cool crime underworld, you got to get Michael Mann. And then I remember someone countered that by saying, well, they're only going to want to do it if they came up with it. And I think that's just it. I think if he feels like it's derivative or yeah. it's not somehow his voice in a familiar deal, I think he's going to then just do the whole, uh, you know, running out of ideas yeah. <laughs> yeah absolutely but i i kind of feel like but he would be perfect yes i don't like a girl he'd be wonderful you should totally chase that money train and then bring out the awesomeness <laughs> yeah i and it would be interesting to see how he deals with that longer form because if he's used to kind of jumping around from subject to subject actually having a refined like arc of something that needs to go from A to B. Why not? I you mean, know, you just got to worry about making it an effective, again, thriller. And yeah. I mean, the best shows are definitely the ones like Criminal Minds or The Closer, cliche to say, but I think those are good at, you know, like Bones kind of just always was just, was much like Psych or, you know, obviously more soapy, but just kind of more, eh, you know, we don't care if you get it or not. We just want to have a fun time. And those yeah. shows, these other shows, Minds and Closer, were kind of more about, okay, we're going to give you free suspects and it shouldn't take you long to figure out who did it, but we want to focus on, then we keep you in suspense on how and why they did it. That's going to be the real kicker and that'll hit you on the ass and you mean like, whoa, what? <laughs> yeah. Yeah, and I kind of feel like the idea of episodic, uh, television sort of leans into Friedkin's moment creation as well that like he could almost craft episodes with just one standout moment that uh, leaves totally. everyone talking but that's sort of how he operates uh, and yeah I mean if the money is there 
and that's sort of how things get seen now i mean it used to be that tv wasn't respected at, at all yeah you, you know if you were working other. in tv <laughs> you were you were not working really um so i think the shift in in that to sort of quality tv and um making those talking points and all the money behind it mm-hmm. that's potentially he where you can see him going if people love you enough they can still make you be the producer where you set you get a say in determining the style but yeah like you say it does come to a matter of do they want to do that or do they not care or do they just are they even he might even be the kind who's stuck in the past he's like i'm only gonna do tv if nothing is you know hmm. if it's the last resort even though like you say he could easily with the freedoms allowed probably do an apple plus or yeah. uh netflix or even peacock you know universal's whole thing he could easily do something like that now and he could probably have that uh freedom but that's just that is like does he want to go to the trouble does he not want to bother going through the whole casting does he he might even have a lot of unpopular viewpoints of i can't stand today's actors all the good ones are behind i don't know again this is speculation just based off the kind of statements he tends to make so this is kind of one of those is like okay but i i totally agree he would totally have so much freedom if he could do a kind of homicide or bosch kind of show and do kind of a just yeah. uh, he could even maybe do what his mentor in a way alfred hitchcock did just do an anthology and i get to be the host or narrator <laughs> <laughs> get that pitch in early and yeah. uh, make sure that's that's said but yeah, i get I think to he... say what's not included and what you can include but i'm gonna have to tell you to do a rewrite because it's not how we do things here <laughs> <laughs> But yeah, I, I think he's he's such an interesting and enduring filmmaker. Um, and it it kind of feels like he's not done. That, that's no. the thing you get from him. You, you kind of feel like someone like him is always going to be involved in some capacity until he literally can't anymore. I was that way too, where I was like, yeah, I mean, uh, <laughs> uh, oh, who was it? That Robert Town announced a Chinatown anthology show, which he was supervising. And that came out of left field. I'm like, well, I thought he was still, you know, rewriting scripts, you know, the best script doctor in Hollywood. Yeah. Uh, and that came out of stage, right? I'm like, whoa, okay. I'm looking forward to that. <laughs> yeah, I'm just trying to think when his last, when Friedkin's last film was. Uh, well, okay, so that one you mentioned, that was like, 2016 17 so pretty recent and then he had a 2018 italian made uh documentary about him so oh yeah like the 2017 devil and amorph is yeah so i mean oh there's frankie machine fracking as listed as an unreleased so it does look like he's got something going on um Mm -hmm. but certainly not something that's like that's quite a big gap in films but then again it was six years between killer joe and amorth but kind of wouldn't class amorth as a a film in the same way right (laughs) sorry that's very shady but it's not (laughs) well Um, 
and it's a shame that he had to sink to that level, but it is what it is. I he's got so much incredible movies behind me because, like you say, he's bottled up enough energy and let such mayhem become a cool movie as opposed to like Werner Herzog where you've got a great guy who can do all kinds of movies but has all these terrible experiences to write about or like you say other people who like Polanski do excellent movies and yet terrible person you know it's Mm. really not much of that it's more just hey he he showcased all kinds of stuff and now kind of just sits and waits Yeah. Yeah. And, and I think there's more of a, a focus on on him now because he's so outspoken. It's like, yeah, let's let's get him interviewed. Let's hear what he has to say <laughs> about the process, because like Leap of Faith is a, is a fascinating film. Um, and yeah, it's very specific, but also it sort of tells you quite a lot about him in terms of where he was and where he is. Uh, which is quite interesting. Yes. Because, like, obviously he's not the same guy For those who don't know, in that's the 70s. The Exorcist documentary that came out in 2019. And yeah. Yeah, I mean... <laughs> I mean... It, it, you know, with that, it, it's kind of like, he's definitely not the same person. And I think he, he can talk about it much more eloquently now um, in terms of the artistic influences and everything like that. Because I think when you think about that movie you think about effects you think about the kind of thing the that shocking. was pioneered on mm-hmm. on there the shocking elements and now i think he's more keen to talk about the craft of it yeah I, and the personal kind of thing that he went through and with the right person it. like you gotta sell him hey do you actually want to see what i gotta say or are you gonna jack up my interview i'm sure i would not be surprised if he has a clause is like do not edit the shit out of my interview i do not want the negative yeah. press having to deal with someone you know taking me out of context and by the way it's roger corman's 96th birthday today he's like one of oh, the wow. few people who i can't think is in any way has any connection to that man just about everyone else does you know? yeah yeah because i mean roger corman is iconic in terms of what he's done in (laughs) and he's another one he didn't do anything really of essence but yet everyone got their start with him in some capacity like hey we got this crappy thriller we're doing for uh, showtime you want to be yeah (laughs) and i think like it comes of that philosophy in a way of like just get it done um and get it done anything in the can is gonna do something um, which I think is something that applies to a lot of indie filmmakers today, you know, yes. who will go out and make what they can with what they have at their disposal, because the sooner you have a film out, the better. Like, it's almost, it doesn't matter if it's not quite refined. Like, it's you can... very complex, because, like, Kevin Smith was held as a comedy god, and now he's kind of mocked by some. And then there's, you know, Rebel Without a Crew is an inspirational book by Rod Rodriguez, even though prior to Mandalorian, he was having a lot of duds. And so it's weird. It's just like, basically, everyone's having to deal with getting old. <laughs> it's just like, 
Uh, yeah, I, and I think the fact that now you don't necessarily need a studio behind you to have a hit. Not uh, a single person such. anymore, no. <laughs> you, you know, that you have, and I think you particularly see it with indie horror, um, yes. that, you know, it is so, it, people are doing such creative things in contrast to a lot of the mainstream stuff. So yes. maybe with the mainstream stuff, you're getting your kind of like, that's how trains. Disney does. <laughs> like, yeah, the way the indie person who totally was doing totally different kinds of movies because they had to be creative, they didn't have the budget to show this or that, so they had to do montages. They had to, do, you know. yeah. I, I mean, I, I'm not a fan of stuff like Insidious or the Conjuring movies. I understand the appeal to people because they're Same. kind of like ghost trains, um, right. you know, and I, it just doesn't appeal to me, but it kind of works as big budget, glossy horror and it gets and it's inevitable in. you're gonna have the glossiness this is like uh, you're seeing people who now want different kinds of superhero movies different kinds of demon possession yeah. body terror movies and then yeah then you got mystery movies can you do a knives out or can you do you know a seven kind of movie can you do something that people will talk about for days because the plot twist was both earned and lived up to the hype as opposed to the yeah. ones who were always going to hate it or weren't genre fans to begin with. <laughs> yeah, and I think there's there's uh, something I keep coming back to is like the the memification of movies. So like, it used to be that you could kind of get a, around not seeing a movie for like a week and you'd be right? okay. <laughs> if you don't go opening weekend now, um, you're going to have like, what was it, midsummer spoilers without context. Um, right. That would just be for seemingly unrelated Walking Dead and Game of Thrones. <laughs> you know, it just feels like there's no time. But also, you'll you'll just talk about one aspect of the the film, and almost in terms of Friedkin, that's ideally suited to him. You know yeah. that that you could put something out there, and people would talk about that one shocking scene. I am and that surprised. Would sustain it. I am totally surprised. I would have thought he would have been on the train that people go to for a consult. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. How do you create those moments that people talk about? How do you create that shock? It um, makes you wonder, do they just want to admire and study his work and listen to the commentary, but they don't actually want to work with him? <laughs> yeah. <laughs> I yeah. heard a bad thing about him. <laughs> Not yeah, exactly. Him. I, I I don't think he's going to be someone easy to sit down with. Um, perhaps I wonder if his interviews he just charges out the max. He's like, you want to talk about the Exorcist for the bit of time? Be my guest, but you got to pay me. I got that yeah. with one of those B movie guys who was one of those. I'm loyal to the fans, and then kept mm. kept getting in heated arguments with them, saying, "Stop asking that stupid question." I'm like, uh, nice dude. <laughs> <laughs> Yeah, I, you know, I, I think there's such an interesting sort of legacy that he has. And I think, you know, perhaps now he's content to explore that legacy rather than add to it. Um, yeah, I what can you tell? That's, <laughs> that's almost really kind of a great thing because you'd hate for him to, I guess, make films that he'd didn't believe in or did believe in but are not great um <laughs> and have that be sort of people's like 
last memory of it like some upcoming yeah. cinephile yeah because you know. brian de palma did a final movie and it it was really terrible yeah, <laughs> yeah. he kind of seemed like he was still kind of alive in there and then mm. he did just followed up the the last few years with more garbage and then when your final movie is basically oh and by the way i disown it and i'm like oh yeah yeah yeah, and, and I think he's the kind of personality who who would do that, who would send something out and then disown it. Um, mm-hmm. So yeah, I, I guess it, he's reached a spot where almost you now have the potential for years and years of him exploring his own legacy, which is kind of self-indulgent, but also nice. really interesting. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, there's no doubt in he's got stories to tell. Uh, and I think that's the thing. I think he's the kind of man you want all of the stories out of. Yes. So, uh, yeah. Well, I think he's shared just about enough with the world, for better or worse. <laughs> I, I don't regret watching any of his movies, though. That's the difference between many other people who had their moment in the sun and then outstated. So, yeah. Uh, yeah, I think that's a legacy. Pretty good. <laughs> Uh, where can we find you on the interwebs? Oh, I am mostly on Twitter, uh, at Scared Sheepless. Um, tweeting about the tweets and the tweets. I, I, I do a lot of tweeting, too much tweeting, some might say. Um, I do occasionally remember that I've got an in- Instagram, and that's at Scared Sheepless <laughs> blog, but I'm, I'm less good on that. Uh, obviously, you can find me scaredsheepless.com. Uh, that's where a lot of my reviews go. Um, and under my name uh you can also find me at ghost magazine and we have every two weeks we've been having a, a clubhouse discussion so every Sweet. month we've been set in a like theme so this month is vampires Woo. <laughs> yeah <laughs> so every every two weeks we'll be in clubhouse discussing you got enough uh, bite like, left in you <laughs> <laughs> like a certain amount of, of of vampire lore or um would we want to be a vampire our favorite vampire movies our favorite rules and all those nice. kind of things and you can also catch them on replay as well so that's good okay. um what, and you can also find my stuff record on uh it, it, like i on think Twitch clubhouse does it Oh, Clubhouse. Okay, cool. Yeah, Clubhouse does it as well. So that, yeah, we we turn up on a Sunday evening, uh, seven PM, uh, UK time. I think our next one is Tuesday, April nineteenth, um, and we're discussing vampires there. Uh, I you can also find me occasionally on Horrified Magazine, where I mainly send them endless. Uh, essays on Ben Wheatley movies um, because I am obsessed (laughs) and they will actually be having their first festival this year Um, so June 11th in Hebden Bridge uh, they are showing uh, Theatre of Blood and The Innocents so at the moment it's kind of throwback yeah it's going to be fun I've always wanted to see uh, Theatre of Blood on the big screen Um, so yeah, that's a sort of collection of British horror. So that'll be really fun. That is very cool. Well, thank you very so much. This was really, truly a delight. And I mean, this is kind of part of the whole deal. It's like, talk about a filmmaker who's 
very hard to sum up as opposed to, oh my God, we love him. You know, it's got to be very precise and yet a moody resume, if you will. (laughs) You're just like, oh, okay. (laughs) Yeah, try and weave it all together. us on the web on facebook twitter and instagram the podcast is available on podbean spotify iHeartRadio, anchor apple and anywhere else podcasts are available feel free to review our show and leave comments on any of those sites thanks a million for listening it's a jacked up